All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Kevnitz in Caridian, Word, Sacrament, and Ministry. We're going to be picking up on page 71, but only ever so briefly as we look at question 142, which carries over to page 72. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so we have been talking about the gospel, and of course making a distinction between law and gospel. Does the gospel abrogate the law? What do you think? No. The law, if we're going to speak of its abrogation, is only abrogated in two chief ways, according to Chemnitz in this text. The first would be its condemnation is abrogated in Christ. So for those in Christ, there is no condemnation. The second way it's abrogated would be in our need to be justified or be righteous in the sight of God on account of the law. That too has been abrogated because justification is in Christ. It's by grace, through faith, and apart from work. So those are maybe the only two fruitful ways to speak about the abrogation of the law, but even then cleaner to just not use that language whatsoever since the scriptures speak uh, in a very contrary way. We're going to hear in the gospel reading for this coming Sunday, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Okay, so with that kind of context in our background. Let's turn to the bottom of page 71, question 142. But how does scripture affirm that we are justified and saved freely without merits if the work of redemption cost Christ so much, namely his own blood and death? Answer, with respect to us, This righteousness and salvation is and is called free grace, which comes to us without either our works or merits and without any payment or satisfaction from us. But with respect to Christ the Redeemer, it is and is called redemption, uh, lutron in Greek, or satisfaction, something bought or merited. So, is salvation free? Well, for us it is, but for Christ it clearly was not. So, he pays that cost so that it is free to us. Just because it's free doesn't mean it's like without cost or price, of course. And that's what's being evidenced or articulated here. Probably especially worth us paying attention to in such a consumeristic culture as ours. We've sometimes thought to artificially charge for vacation Bible school because if you don't charge in our culture, people have a tendency to think, well, it's not worth anything. We'd love to offer it free. Of course, that's our spirit and that's what we do. But to charge tells people, no, this is valuable. It's worthwhile. (laughs) So we've got this consumeristic psychology and it benefits us maybe in the way we think ourselves, but in the way we articulate the gospel to others to make sure they understand how priceless and how valuable uh, this great cost, no less than the cost of the very blood of the Son of God. That's an immeasurable cost. And it's that same treasure, by the way, that priceless body and blood of Christ that are distributed to us in Holy Communion. So think about, you know, don't want to launch off on some great meditation here, but if you start to think about value, cost is kind of a synonym to that, but if you start to talk about value, what is there in heaven and on earth that has more value than the body and blood of Jesus? 
gold, that's the asphalt of heaven. Basically worthless. You, you walk on it. Fine jewels? No, not really. So what is valuable? Um, it's a really helpful thing, and it's a really helpful thing for us to just recalibrate that while grace is free and forgiveness of sins is free, both of these are free to us, but Christ paid that they might be free. Okay, don't mean to belabor the point, but I do think that that's worth spending a moment on before we simply move on. Question 143. And what kind of satisfaction does the law require Christ had to render for us? One, the law requires complete, holy, pure, and perfect obedience. This Christ rendered fully and perfectly for us. And then you've got a number of uh, verses here, but maybe especially important, as we mentioned briefly last week, where you've got folks running around entertaining the idea and asserting the idea that Christ sinned. Uh, These scriptures clearly contradict that, perish that thought. So I think another way that's helpful, lest we somehow get in our heads that God and his law are opposed to each other, which would, of course, be absurd. Wouldn't it be equally true to say, instead of the law requires complete, holy, pure, and perfect obedience, to say God requires? I think it would be. Isn't that the essence of the Garden of Eden? Because any sin is ultimately an act of rebellion, even if it's something so small or seemingly small as biting forbidden fruit. It's an act of full-on rebellion. It's choosing to have another God. It's choosing to be one's own God. So I think it is equally apropos to say that God requires complete, holy, pure, and perfect obedience. But what if we don't have that? How can we be restored? And of course, that's part part of the challenge is, is the law says, okay, well, you have to be perfect and holy, but where does the law say that, all right, well, you've got X amount of debit, now you can make X amount of credit via the law. See, I think that's a twisted idea, and that idea actually springs, not from the scriptures, but from our own fallen nature, this idea of credits and debits and this idea that we can make it up. Because think about the law in a more simple way. The law is the bare minimum requirement of what it is to be human. So can you gain anything by filling the law? Do you you ever gain a credit? No. Once you have done all things, say we are unprofitable servants, we have only done what was our duty. If you fulfill the whole law, you're not some superhuman. You're a regular human the way God designed them to be. So much for the idea that we're somehow spiritually neutral and then we fall into various debts and then by doing good works, we can get a certain amount of credit until maybe we end up slightly in the black. The idea, I hope that you you can see that this idea is laid upon a number of false foundations and false presuppositions. Even if we were to be able to fulfill the law perfectly, We've just done the bare minimum. We've just done what's expected. Now, I don't know if Chemnitz will get around to this particular point, but I think, again, it's worthwhile to to note in our particular theological context, and that's that there's nothing difficult about keeping the law. Did Adam and Eve find it difficult? Do the saints in heaven find it difficult? (laughs) Will we find it difficult in the new heavens and the new earth? Of course not. What renders it difficult is not the law, but my flesh, my sin. Now, Paul makes this precise argument in Romans 7, so you can go get it from his pen if you like. But Romans 7 argues that um, we should agree with the law that it's good. It's spiritual. I'm sold under sin. If I were spiritual, the law would be easy. My problem isn't the law per se. My problem is my sin. Okay? 
Now, the law points out that problem. So, in a sense, then, the law, um, you know, it, because it's, it's kind of like this. If a child's misbehaving and mom's disciplining the child, what's the real problem? Mom's discipline? <laughs> the child's misbehavior. Right? But from the child's perspective, of course, mom's discipline is something that, you know, he wishes he wasn't under. That doesn't come from despising, I mean, despising mom's discipline is not the appropriate response. Despising one's own sin and feeling sorry for it and repenting is. You see the distinction? So the law is a ministry of death because it reveals to us how we really are and that we're under the death penalty. But that doesn't mean that the law itself is somehow icky, gross, evil, mean, contrary to God, or, or hard. It's really not. It's the bare minimum of of what it is to be a human being. And you see how far we've fallen from that. So how can we redeem ourselves? If we can't even make a credit, because full fulfillment of the law is what's owed in the first place by creatures, then we we can't ever make up for anything wrong we've done. Then the whole law just shows that we're ultimately lost. And so we have to have a Savior. We have to have Christ the righteous who's going to cover us in his righteousness, who's going to restore us to that fullness of humanity. And that's precisely what's being articulated here when Chemnitz says that the law requires satisfaction for sins that by passion and punishment... Oh, I'm sorry, did I, I think I might have skipped. Um, sorry, back up a little bit. Uh, we're still in question 142. But with respect to Christ the Redeemer, it is in his... Now I don't know. Give me a second. Bear with me. I'm sorry. Yeah, it is too. I was right in the first place. I'm sorry. Uh, under question 143.2, the law requires satisfaction for sins that by passion and punishment divine wrath might be satisfied. And Christ accomplished this satisfaction for us by his passion and death. You know, and here too, divine wrath can be understood. God created us in a certain way. We fall short of that. That's displeasing to God. We fall short of it on account of ourselves, our own volition. That's displeasing to God. It's displeasing to you when you follow the recipe and you're baking a cake and you pull it out and it's all sunken in the middle. Or it somehow inexplicably tastes like wood chips. So it's not doing what it's supposed to do. You, bit, you get frustrated. Okay? And that's, that's just an analogy of God creating human beings to be a certain way. And when we of our own volition turn out, not through no fault of his, turn out to be bad cakes, then that's frustrating, but on a cosmic scale. So that's a way of understanding wrath, too. I mean, God is not like this vindictive, nasty, angry, cross this arbitrary line and I'm going to zap you. That's not how he is. That's not even how he is in the law. When he's articulating the ministry of death, that's not how he is. And so all these errors are kind of swirling around in the thoughts of the church and have been maybe for the last, I don't know, 70 or 100 years or something like that. And we want to really get our thinking clear on all of this or else we're going to have a bunch of things distorted. Okay, so then just closing out the last line, let me pause and see if you want to do some talking. Last line of 143. And in this way, Christ obtained this for us, namely through his own passion and death. He obtained this for us that by his redemption, we are justified freely or by grace without our merit. All right, let's see if you have any thoughts. Uh, my question is, um, I've always, well, first of all, I should say, I've always thought that um, something along the lines of what you were saying, that um, adherence to God's laws, the Ten Commandments, was just uh, our duty. Mm-hmm. And I, so then I thought the good works would be something you would do beyond that. But then it occurred to me recently, is, is it a good work? to please God and do his law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It okay. is. And there's really no good work outside of that category. Okay, so then I thought, well, 
trying to get my head around these concepts of justification and sanctification is adhering to God's law, if that's a good work, is that sanctification? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and that is being fruitful in good works. So we will, in this text, spend some time on this. I need to put down my coffee so I can flip more effectively, but we're only some pages away from an article on new obedience. Uh, Page 96 is good works or new obedience. So we'll be talking about what constitutes a good work, what is the nature of this new obedience. In what sense could could man before his, after the fall, before his conversion, in what sense can he do good works and what sense can he not? In what sense can a Christian, that is someone who's been renewed by the Holy Spirit, do good works? And how is that different when contrasted, right? Because we're going to find different kinds of good works. (laughs) We're going to find different ways in which the Bible is speaking, um, articulating various aspects of this point. So one nice biblical way to think is that apart from faith, all is sin. But through faith, all is righteousness. So good works flow from faith. If you don't have faith, you don't have any good or God-pleasing works. So faith, that justification, is the root, is the foundation, is the source of good works. Good works flow from faith, or love flows from faith. And then what is love but a fulfilling of the law? So the law is the form that that love takes. And you can do a thought experiment. If love takes some other form of the law, then what would that be? Sin. (laughs) Would it thus be love any longer? Oh, of course not. So when we rewrap our minds around the fact that the scriptures teach that the law is love, God is love, that the law reflects his character, the law is love. And we know this because the first table of the law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, soul. And the second table of the law is love your neighbor as yourself. And these two are so closely wed, I, you know, I, I just don't know how much is profitable in putting them in constant antithesis with each other, as contemporary theology seems to want to do, because where do these two things wed? Where do faith, hope, and love wed? Where do justice and grace kiss but in the crucifixion of Jesus himself? What Jesus is doing on the cross that we would think of as gospel is indistinguishable from his fulfillment of the law. Though though God has forsaken him, he cries out in perfect faith and love, my God, my God. Though humanity has forsaken him and is crucifying him, he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. Perfect love for God, perfect love for neighbor, even in the face of Um, being forsaken and being despised, is precisely what constitutes the salvific act. So you want to say gospel without law, I don't know what you're talking about. You want to say the gospel destroys the law, I don't know what you're talking about. The gospel par excellence, the source, the essence, Christ and him crucified for us, is precisely inextricable from the fulfilling of the law. Does that make sense? So something happens where when humanity is, well, of course, in this life it's only begun, but we can already glimpse it. When we're made whole, the word of God, which is always whole, begins to be perceived by us as a whole, as a unit. The separation of law and gospel, would there be a separation of law and gospel if there was no sin? If there was sin, there'd be no condemnation from God's word. So, insofar as we're being healed from that, we're being united, our perception, it's almost as if we've got double vision, and our perception begins to be healed, where the word of God just becomes one, even as we are finally unified as one. Okay, well, that's getting a little out there, but... Please. Um, Something just jumped off the page at me when you read uh, point two, Uh, under question 143 you said Mm -hmm. um, it reads that the law requires satisfaction for our sins Mm -hmm. and uh, I I see that in a 
really a loving, merciful way of God. It requires is a word that kind of we, we kind of bristle at, but offers satisfaction if we think of it that way. Uh, and the sacrificial system in the Old Testament not an obligation; it was, it was a loving act of God. Yeah, that that sins would be satisfied. So imagine if we had in our country in the civil order uh, no way for a criminal to have satisfaction, exactly. or he goes to prison for two years or whatever. Then that's a satisfaction of mm-hmm. of, the, of his disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have a loving God, so if we see the law in that way, that it's connected with satisfaction. Yeah. Yes, this is just a comment on mine. Yeah. Resonating correctly. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely resonate with your comment. I think it's great. You know, we probably don't spend enough time thinking about this because the old Adam in us loves the idea of a God who just forgives. Because then there's no Christ and him crucified. It's just God who just forgives. Right? And we love a God who just forgives because we recognize something unconsciously that he's every bit then as corrupt as we are. And he'll accept and approve our sin. Because that's really what forgiveness without consequence whatsoever is, is it's acceptance, it's approval. And we're constantly trying to get God to approve of our sins as fallen human beings. Okay? So what happens to justice if God just simply forgives? Well, justice has to be destroyed then this forgiveness is antithetical to justice. And that's often what you hear, is that grace and justice are contradictory. They're absolutely not. They are in a faulty theological system. And it's a faulty system because what it ends up doing is making God the great mobster in the sky. Because you come to him and you say, I'm terribly sorry for my sins, and he says, forget about it. I forgive you. Well, no consequence, no payment, no nothing. I said forget about it. Guess I'm free to go do whatever I want. It makes God just a divine mobster, and justice is utterly lost, and there's no sense of goodness in God. But then think a little bit more deeply, like all our Ecclesiastes. Now what meaning is there, whether you serve your neighbor or whether you punch your neighbor in the face? Either one's acceptable to God. He's ready to forgive. Salvation by grace. So it really doesn't matter how you live. So it strips everything of its meaning and its its importance and its distinction. So that's the the heavy, heavy cost of this God just forgives. Um, It's not calculated immediately, but it is down the line and it will be paid. So what we see if we keep Christ and him crucified front and center is we see the wedding of justice and grace. Think of a scripture verse like this, that God, from Romans, that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can he be just? Because he says, hey, every human being whom I'm, who I've created in my image is accountable to me. You're accountable for what you've done. That's how I'm just. That's this idea of the law requiring satisfaction. Hey, you owe me that. You did this wrong. That's justice. That's good, right? And then since we cannot repay, he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He, through grace, sends his son to make that payment for us. So I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's becoming apparent that especially helps you see and understand that a, a God who just forgives all the time is a real problem. <laughs> I mean, if there's some dispute between my two, two children, not that that ever happens, and I don't enter into judgment, I demonstrate to them that I'm unjust, that I don't care, that there is no consequence to their actions. I am, in essence, setting them free to sin. Yeah. All that to say, I really resonate with your thought paradigm there, Barry. I agree wholeheartedly. Let us venture forth. Question 144 and the final under this section of the gospel. What is the difference between the law and the gospel? 
One, the law is to some extent known by nature. And yeah, the primary source for this is Romans 2. So this is the natural knowledge of God, the natural law, why human morality generally looks the same from culture to culture. Uh, The conscience is cited by St. Paul, um, written into us. By the way, I mean, if you're ever tempted toward evolution, the conscience is really inexplicable. I mean, they try, but it's really unsatisfying. Why do I have this thing within me that is contrary to the Darwinian evolution? Oh, for societal reasons. Nonsense. Darwinian evolution doesn't care about societal reasons. It cares about not dying and having sex. That's what Darwinian evolution cares about. So the conscience, as opposed to these things, is really a wild... I mean, and even when you think of the nature of sin as self-interest, at its root, the self curved in on itself, selfishness, self-interest, and you think of that as the essence of, why would I have this thing within me that accuses me or hinders me? It's proof of the divine. It's proof of God. It's proof that he's written his law within us. And by the way, that's the natural knowledge of the creator also. It's why nobody's without, no one has an excuse. Not Jew, not Gentile. Nobody has an excuse. Nobody can say, oh, I didn't know there was a God and I wasn't accountable to him. God's going to look at that and say, yes, you did. You absolutely did. And you chose to worship the creation rather than the creator. You suppressed the knowledge of me that I gave you and wrote into your heart. You convinced yourself on a bunch of internet forums from your parents' basement that you think you're an atheist. All the while, you really knew otherwise in your heart. So that's how that'll go down. Romans 2 is the law is to some extent known by nature. Of course, we've talked at length about how that gets lost, the abuse of the conscience, um, the pursuit of other uh, religious, quote-unquote, morality, etc. All right, he continues, but the gospel is a mystery hidden to reason, which God has revealed only through his word. Yeah, and there's fascinating indications that it was hidden not only to our reason, but to angelic reason as well. Principalities and powers that be above us, of which we know very little, would not have arranged the crucifixion of Christ had they understood the scriptures and the gospel. This beautiful, beautiful uh, work of God to both to simultaneously reveal and hide this truth uh, all the way along. So it's hidden to reason. It has to be revealed by God through his word. Lots of scripture references there. If you're following along online, um, check those out. All right, point two under question 144, or answer two, I should say. The law is a mystery pointing out, censuring, and rebuking sins and pronouncing all men worthy of eternal death because of them. But the gospel is a ministry. I wonder with mystery if it's a typo, if it's supposed to be ministry. I mean, mystery works, but it's just a little strange. But the gospel is a ministry that points to true righteousness before God through Christ and through it offers and bestows life eternal to all that apprehend it by faith. I mean, the law certainly is, it does fit the, cat, the Christian category of mystery. That is to say, you can know it, but you can never know it fully. You can know it, but you can't ever comprehend how it functions. Fully comprehend, I mean. How it functions. Okay, third, the law indeed itself also speaks of righteousness and salvation, but it has respect to us and it seeks and requires to perfection that righteousness in us, in our nature, actions, and works, if we want to be saved by it. And again, how precisely one does that is never articulated in the scriptures. In fact, the law just stops every mouth. But since that cannot be rendered by us because of our corrupt nature, therefore the gospel sets Christ before us, who by his obedience, passion, and death has purchased for us the true righteousness before God that is imputed and given to us freely without our merit, solely for the sake of Christ and through faith. And the only word I'd point out there is maybe this language of imputation. That's God crediting it to you. God 
taking something that isn't properly yours and attributing it to you. That's imputation. So, like, if your husband burns the eggs and you tell them they're wonderful, that's an imputation of wonderfulness upon the burnt eggs. Yeah, please. Just a quick correction. Uh, In my uh, online copy of the text, the word uh, is ministry. Whereas, so apparently it is a, just a, a typo in this particular edition that we have. Yeah. That, I have two different editions here. So Yeah, that seems right. And it seem, uh, thank you for that. I really appreciate that. I'm going to just correct it in this text. It's all, I mean, it's also a parallel construction, so it's hard to think why, why they would put mystery. Yeah, thanks. Okay, anything else we want to touch on in regard to the nature of the gospel? I mean, I feel, like, I feel like at least in this circle here, in this room, the gospel's not some great controversial subject. So I'm not going like to you know, overdo it. I think we all get the gospel, understand grace. And, um, of course, there's plenty to explore and there's plenty of questions we might have. But at its core, it's relatively graspable. Good enough? Yeah, please. It's one of the proofs that it's from God is because it's so absurd, right? That it's just human nature. Yeah. Ridiculous. How can we believe this? Yeah. This 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 thing, right? Yeah. So I was just reading somewhere. I don't know, but it was like, yeah, that makes sense, right? It can only come from God because it's yeah. so out there. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true. It's that, true. Yeah, there's all I mean, kinds I'm, of wild absurdities and just even stylistic, aesthetic things that he, fallen human beings would never choose. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's kind of one of, the, one of the stunning things you can say to people when they say, oh, we all worship. In the end, we all worship the same God. You know, you'll get this, like, usually at some precarious point in time where you're sitting in the barber's chair and you're at the mercy of the barber and he or she says something like, well, we all worship the same God. And you're just like, ugh. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, we all worship the same God. Did your God die on a cross naked on a Friday afternoon 2,000 years ago? Well, uh, no. I don't think we have the same God. So that's the, the scandal of the cross, the absurdity of the cross, the way that that's, it's, you know, foolishness to the Gentiles, folly to the Gentiles. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it's just what looks to be foolish is the ultimate wisdom. What looks to be weak is the ultimate strength. Yeah, First Corinthians stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, good. On to justification. I'm almost getting a nosebleed from how fast we're going here. This is remarkable. All right, question 145. In what then does justification of man, the sinner, before God consist according to the statement of the gospel? Kind of a convoluted question or translation, I mean. In this very thing that God imputes to us the righteousness of the obedience and death of Christ the mediator, And thus justifies us freely out of grace, without our works or merits, alone by faith that apprehends the grace of God the Father and the merit of Christ. That is, he forgives us uh, our sins, receives us into grace, adopts us as his sons, and receives us to the inheritance of life eternal. And then, as you can imagine, a whole bunch of scripture references given. So that idea of imputing or crediting or reckoning, those are the kinds of words you'll find in your biblical translations. Is there anything else? Yeah. I'm thinking of when Jesus went to John the Baptist to be baptized, he, he said... Unless I am baptized, all righteousness 
cannot be fulfilled. So this, to me, adds total, you know, it makes it full circle, the, the baptism waters, that this is the imputation of, in those waters, his righteousness is imputed to me. Mm-hmm. I never understood that verse for a long time, you know. Mm-hmm. Why did he need to be baptized? I was like John the Baptist, you know. Right. But, but we, we understand baptism in a lot deeper way, but we'll never totally understand that sacrament. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I was kind of there with you, struggling to understand that. And then secondarily, struggling to understand what does it mean for the fulfilling of all righteousness? Because it just kind of strikes our fleshly ears as, oh, Jesus had to do this in order to be righteous. Wasn't he righteous before? Absolutely was. He doesn't need anything to be righteous. So whose righteousness is he fulfilling? (laughs) Ours. Yeah, and as we join him in those waters, as you articulated... We become one with him. We be- all, all that is his is imputed to us. So that coming out of those waters, you know, born from above, born of water and the Spirit, coming up out of those waters, what God said to his son that day, he also says to us, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Yeah, beautiful. You can, uh, if all we had was, I mean, of course, I'm exaggerating here, but if all we had was the baptism of Jesus, we would eventually work out everything else that the Bible says about baptism. It's just glorious. It's all you need. Okay? So then, top of 73, is that right? I think that's right. Question 146, a lengthy question with a lengthier answer. But to justify by reason of etymology or composition is the same as to make just. And since the Holy Ghost renews believers so they yield their members instruments of righteousness, uh, Romans 6.13. Surely justification consists in that renewal of the Holy Ghost or in the new obedience of the reborn. It's a great question. And this, this question maybe more than any penetrates to the true heart of the Reformation and what was really being argued kind of cliches aside or caricaturizations aside. Chemnitz's answer, one must not determine the true meaning of the word justify by Latin usage, for it is a special word proper to the Holy Scriptures. For when Scripture wants to say that someone is cleared of a charge that was aimed at him, and of the sentence of damnation, it uses the word justify in a forensic sense, like a courtroom sense. Don't think necessarily of a crime show. You know, enhance, enhance, like not like that necessarily, but like courtroom sense. And often in antithesis, opposing damnation with justification. Okay, so a, a lengthy sentence there, made lengthier by my interruption. It would be anachronistic to take the Latin like justitia or justificare and anachronistically import a Latin meaning back onto the scriptures. Um, And so, I mean, we, we run into that too from time to time. That's kind of the opening salvo. And then when Scripture, so we're taking the language and the conceptual frame of the Scriptures themselves. When Scripture wants to say that someone is cleared of the charge that was aimed at him, of the sentence of damnation, it uses the word justify in a forensic sense. So to be announced or proclaimed uh, innocent or righteous or off the hook. Opposing damnation with justification. And then you've got a whole bunch. So if like, you want to dig into the real exegesis of this, you've got, I don't know what it is, one, two, three, four, five, maybe six references there. I, I can't quite tell fast. All right, he continues. Now at this point, the Holy Spirit was pleased to use the word justification in a forensic sense for the whole process or act of the reconciliation of man, the sinner, with God is simply and clearly represented, as it were, with the word justify. For this matter is not handled incidentally or lightly, but seriously, and what is more, before the court of God, 
and God himself the judge. For the law summons us to the tribunal of divine judgment, where it not only accuses us of sin, but completely convicts us. And since before that just court of God, every mouth is to be stopped and the whole world is to be subjected to God, Romans 3.19, therefore Moses pronounces against us the sentence of death and condemnation. So 2 Corinthians 3 and Deuteronomy 27. Therefore, when our conscience, now convicted of sins and therefore made subject to eternal death and damnation, anxiously looks about for something with which to oppose this just judgment of God so that it might avoid and evade the broad sentence of damnation, it finds nothing at all. But finally, God himself, rich in mercy, sets his Son before us in the gospel as atonement. And those who, through faith, take recourse to that Son, the Mediator, and apprehend him by faith, those the Father justifies from the charge placed by the law and from the sentence of condemnation. That is, he absolves them for the sake of Christ and by imputation of the obedience and death of Christ, declares them righteous and awards them life eternal. And this is the process or act of the justification of a sinner before the judgment seat of God, so that he appeals from the throne of the strict justice of God to the throne of grace in the blood of the Son of God, as Gerson describes the matter of justification by the apt simile of forensic appeal. All right, so as you get into this whole framework, biblically speaking, um, well, I, let's just say that this is a, an accurate articulation of that. Dikaiosune uh, in Greek is righteousness, I think. And so you've got um, God justifying us by not counting our transgressions against us, but reckoning them to Christ instead. So that's the mechanism by which he can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, I don't mean to belabor the point, but I think, again, if you understand the gospel, you understand all of this, right? And if you understand the gospel, you may have lots of questions related to it, to be sure. But at at its core, I hope it just makes sense. Yeah, thought? So to make oneself righteous, to make right or make good on it, is what's being implied here by the Latin sense or usage of justification. Mm-hmm. So you can think of um, you can think of two different categories of make righteous. All right. So I can. Um, So I don't know. I hope I'm not going to muddy the waters with this. You probably tend to risk, run that risk anytime you do an analogy. But you can take a worm and it will become a butterfly, right? So in one sense, you are making the worm into a butterfly. It's, a, it's an ontological change. It's a change in the being and form of that creature. So it goes from a worm to a butterfly. That's that kind of making righteous, where we go from a sinful worm to a sinless saint, a sinless butterfly, if you will, um, that ontological change is not what's in view here. The Holy Spirit works that. That's sanctification. And if you want to kind of zoom out out of the categories, that's the big picture of what God's going to do. But we're not justified on the basis that we've entered the cocoon. <laughs> so... We're, so then the other side is God looks at us and says, yes, you're a worm, but you will be a butterfly. And indeed, in that sense, you are a butterfly. I'm going to credit you with butterflyness, and I'm not going to you know, throw you out into the mulch pile or whatever, right? So it's this kind of idea of you are not yet, but I'm going to treat you as though you were. And, of course, for the sake of Christ. So I know that that can muddy the waters if you're more like type 
philosophy type category inclined, but if you're just sort of like wrapping your head around these things, that might give you a window into what's at stake. So uh, in medieval period, Roman Catholicism, in particular what's in view here, is they're saying anytime you find the word justification or its cognates, you're, you're talking about a worm becoming a butterfly. And we find everywhere in the scriptures this other category altogether where no God looks at us as, as sinners and declares us to be righteous, declares us to be saints. Um, we will one day be butterflies. He's treating us right now as though we already were for the sake of Christ. <clears throat> All right, well, talking about butterflies wasn't on my bingo card when I woke up this morning, but here we are. Yes, sir. Uh, real quick, can you give a blameless versus righteous? There is a difference, I gather. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. Um, is that hard to uh, say in a short? Yes. Oh. <laughs> so there's a, dis- there's a biblical distinction between sinlessness and blamelessness. So a, one of the qualifications for a pastor is that he be blameless. Heaven forbid, if that's sinless, we're lost, right? Should have been thrown out a long time ago. Uh, but blame- and blameless is a, is a challenging category because it tends to have a wide sense and a narrow sense, even scripturally. Um, blameless in the wide sense... Um, would be uh, something like good faith, upright, conducting oneself in the manner in which one should conduct oneself, not having obvious uh, debilitating scandal attached to your person or something like that, right? Um, We recognize this. A civil parallel to this would be if you're a felon. So by way of analogy, society says, okay, you're a felon, you've lost certain rights, you are debilitated beyond the stage of not being a felon. You are now in this other category. Okay? So in the same way, you can be blameless or not blameless, right? Um, that, that kind of way of thinking, way of working. So, but other places you can, I mean, other places in the scripture, I don't mean, again, to muddy the waters here, but other places in the scripture, it seems as though blamelessness can be restored. I don't think that that's the case in terms of the pastoral office or the nature of that work. If a man, if a man loses his blamelessness in that office, he needs to step down from the office or be removed from the office. Or if he's not blameless to begin with, he shouldn't be considered for the office, okay? So blamelessness is not sinlessness. It's just good faith meeting the other categories, no obvious scandal attached to your name or person that's going to preclude somebody's ability to hear the gospel from you, right, or receive the sacrament from you. That's what's in view there. And then there are other biblical treatments, like in Proverbs we've run across the concept uh, and the English word blameless um, countless times. And that's where you see things a little more fluid, like kind of you can almost return to blamelessness, right? Yeah, probably. I mean, yeah, generally speaking, probably. Mm -hmm. I mean, we expect our attorneys to be blameless. We expect our doctors to be blameless within certain different categories, right? But you get disbarred if you don't uphold a certain level of uh, integrity and ethics as an attorney. There's a consequence. Same if you're a doctor, maybe to a different or lesser degree, but certainly in the conduct of your office. And the same with the pastor, the same with the judge. Yeah, probably other fields too. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the HR department is determining who's blameless or not these days. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, so when we conduct, one more thing on this, because this is just, I can't believe I almost forgot this, my favorite little soapbox to stand on when we talk about blamelessness. So, blamelessness is of the utmost importance when you look at your vocation. So you, can, um, you cannot conduct yourself as a husband or wife, as a mother or father, as children, as a worker or supervisor. You cannot conduct yourself in those offices with sinlessness. So that doesn't mean that you go, well, all is lost. <laughs> Just give up on that. The goal then is blamelessness, conducting yourself in a blameless way. And a blameless way, again, is good faith. So at the end of the day, you go, you say with St. Paul, I'm not aware of anything against myself. I'm not thereby justified. I know I'm a sinner. 
I know I've got to have a sinful nature. Undoubtedly, here, there, somewhere else, I slipped into some sinful thought, word, or deed, or um, some, if I wasn't doing a deed of commission, certainly some omission. Okay? But my conscience is at rest. And that's the kind of vocational blamelessness that we want to strive toward every day. And that blamelessness is so important, especially if you find yourself in some sort of toxic relationship. You know, maybe your parents are getting older and they've become functionally the children and you're functionally the parent. And um, it's really hard for everyone, those tensions and maybe some nasty things are said and whatnot. But you want to be able to say in your heart, in your conscience and before God, no, I'm conducting myself blamelessly, not sinlessly, I don't claim that, but blamelessly within my office as child in this particular example. Of course, contentions between husband and wife, it's the same thing. You want to be able to retain a good conscience and, hey, yeah, you know, sins happen, they come and go, they need to be dealt with within a marriage, but the goal then is not sinlessness per se, of course we aim toward that, but that's not the goal per se. The goal per se is blamelessness. Conduct yourself within, in the office in a way that a normal person wouldn't find fault with it. A normal Christian wouldn't find fault with it. Okay, that, has, that category of blamelessness has nothing to do with justification. That has everything to do with just living life with a good conscience and living in a sinful world, uh, striving toward a lesser quality, blamelessness, biblical all right, 147. Oh, it's getting hard with breakfast smelling so good. <laughs> Does God then justify the sinner because of sins, so that in that justification no righteousness whatever need intervene in respect to which the sinner is pronounced righteous? Answer. God himself calls that kind of justification an abomination. And that's what I was getting at earlier. The great mobster in the sky, you had to put up with my terrible accent, whatever that is. But God himself calls that kind of justification an abomination. To simply release people, to simply say, oh, you just raped, murdered, and pillaged? No biggie. You're forgiven. That's an abomination. And think about that too, if you were on the receiving end of all of that, and then God just said, no biggie. I mean, maybe you need to be a parent of little children or... uh, to really viscerally understand this or reflect back to when you were. Because when they go after each other, you don't, you know, if one pummels the other, you don't get to just say, okay, I forgive you. What does the other one do? Hey! What? What's going on here? They just get off the hook? And that's actually a good and godly impulse. I mean, somebody comes and burns down your home, steals your car, and then the judge just goes, I forgive you. What? So that kind of injustice, not grace, injustice is an abomination before God. And if it's labeled as grace, if it's labeled as some sort of forensic uh, imputation, it is nonetheless and no less a, an abomination. So God himself calls that kind of justification an abomination. Exodus 23.7, Proverbs 17.15, Isaiah 5.22 through 23. Therefore, the judgment of God must be met with such righteousness, or there must be interposed between God, the angry judge, and rightfully angry, and man, the sinner, such righteousness through which, and because of which, God justifies the wicked. For justification cannot take place without righteousness. And, of course, what's interposed is the crucifixion of Christ. That's justice and grace wedding and becoming one. All right, 148. But what then is the righteousness that faith brings to the judgment seat of God that God might justify the miserable sinner because of it? Answer. The new obedience of the reborn is indeed also called a kind of righteousness. So we're already starting to get a little ahead of ourselves here, but not yet. The new obedience of the reborn is indeed also a kind of righteousness. Romans 6.16, 1 John 2.29. But it cannot be that righteousness through and because of which we are justified before God unto life eternal. For before anyone might render that righteousness of new obedience, 
it is necessary that the person be reconciled to God, that is, be justified by God. In other words, before you can do any good works in God's sight, you have to have faith in his justification, free and apart from good works. Moreover, because of sin dwelling in our flesh, the new obedience of the reborn is weak, impure, and imperfect in this life, so that we can by no means be justified by it before God. Yeah, so there's two errors here. One error is to say, hey, since we have new obedience, since we actually do good works that flow from faith, now God's going to let us in on account of those. That's an error. But the opposite error is to say, no, there's no such thing as a good work. There's no such thing as a righteous deed. Everything, even the works of the saints, continue to be nothing but sin. That's just the opposite error. And the scriptures nowhere teach that. So, Kenneth's beautifully threading the needle between those two errors for us here. Since then, faith, instructed by the word of God, knows that it cannot find such righteousness, either in the nature or in any of the most sanctified life of any man, or in any other creature by which a man might be justified before God. It therefore apprehends in the word and the sacraments Christ the mediator with his most holy obedience and most innocent death, by which he satisfied the law for us having formed the resolute conviction that this is the true and only righteousness that avails and stands before God. What other righteousness could avail and stand before God? All human beings are fallen. All, Not even like corporately. You're going to put the human race corporately together and say, here you go, God. No. It's all wretched. There's nothing you can turn to. You're going to put animals up, the righteousness of animals. You can't because cats... Just joking, cat lovers of the world, just joking. All right. Chemnitz continues, and faith meets the judgment of God with this righteousness, wishing, desiring, praying, and in true confidence, believing that because of it, a sinner is justified by God, that is, absolved of sins, received into grace, and given eternal life. Since this righteousness of Christ rendered for us is perfect, sufficient, and abundant, can stand before the judgment seat of God. Therefore, God has promised that he would impute it to believers just as if they rendered it themselves. And thus, believers absolutely have, not indeed in themselves, but in Christ, true and genuine righteousness, through which they are justified before God. So, you can see then why even is... We have reference to it in the second century. I don't think it just appeared out of thin air there. I think it goes all the way back to the apostles forward. But you can see why making the sign of the cross has become such an important part of Christian piety, even though it's not, there's no chapter or verse from the Bible that says, thou shalt do this. God imputes his righteousness to us in holy baptism. That's this gift of the washing away of sins. We receive that perpetual forgiveness in a different form through the Lord's Supper. As we meditate on these things, it's only right to make the sign of the cross, reminding ourselves of our baptism, reminding ourselves of the fruits of his cross given for us to eat and drink in the Lord's Supper. Um, So crossing ourselves, you know, the catechism instructs every morning and evening, other appropriate times of the day, but it's just this perfect sort of Reminder that you're not just your soul, you're your body also. And that in body and soul, you're covered in the righteousness of Christ. And because his righteousness is sufficient, your lack of righteousness doesn't ultimately have any bearing on your salvation. That's wonderful news, isn't it? That when the hour of death comes, when you're, you know, sitting in the ER or whenever uh, you're sitting at home or whatever the case may be, you just don't have to be afraid. Because Christ is with you and Christ has covered you and Christ's righteousness is, in fact, sufficient. There's no greater righteousness that can even be conceived than that of true God and true man. So, beautiful, glorious gospel. Just so wonderful. That's it for today. Let's uh, pick up next week. 
Where did we get? Did we get uh, through 148? So we'll pick up next week with 149 and then on next week to faith. The Lord be with you.